So this month, as I said, I want to talk about um, the, the importance of gathering together to eat, the importance of having meals together. And, and to begin, I'd like to share a story of one of the most amazing meals that I've ever had in my life, which I think will illustrate many of the points that I want to touch on uh, this morning. Um, several years ago, almost um, 10 years ago, maybe over 10 years ago now, I had the opportunity to travel further than I'd ever traveled before. It was to the Comoros Islands, which are in Africa. They're actually in between the mainland Africa on the southeast side and Madagascar, the big island. There's these four little islands that sit there in the Indian Ocean. And I had a chance to travel there um, with a group of people to visit a friend of ours who was working there. Now, he was working there with a Christian team, but this country is 100% Muslim, 100% Islam. So it's really, you can't really evangelize or you're not supposed to change religions at all. So what they were doing there was they were just trying to be a light and a witness in the community. So they were teaching English classes to people. They were doing exercise classes. Um, and, you know, they were helping out in the community in whatever way they could. And um, I had in my heart to take a group of people and to go visit. And uh, it was just an amazing experience. We spent two weeks there. Uh, the islands look like tropical islands. I mean, the water, the Indian Ocean is beautiful. Crystal blue water, palm trees, beaches everywhere. I mean, it's just it's an amazing setting. And, and in that setting, um, we were invited one evening to go have dinner at this man's house named Jean. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Jean so you understand the context of this meal that we shared with him. Jean had been, um, had been crippled. Both of his legs did not work. And he had several surgeries uh, to correct that. But in their culture, many people thought he was cursed by God because of that, that there must have been something he did wrong you know, in order to be crippled in his legs and he couldn't move. So he was, a, he was a bit of an outcast. Of course, he couldn't work in that society, so he really depended upon the generosity and the care of others. And he lived in a home that was very, very modest. When I say modest, it was a shack. And when I say it was a shack, I mean it literally was a shack. I mean, it was very small, four walls, a mat on the floor. I think he had a small uh, burner, you know, to, to, to cook or heat up water on the side, but that was it. I mean, I'm telling you, there was nothing else, no furniture, nothing hanging on the wall. I mean, this was, this was a shack on his small little piece of property. And we got invited to go have dinner with Jean because Jean had discovered in Jesus Christ the God who loved him and he cared about him and he had given his life to Jesus Christ actually which meant that his family shunned him. He was put out of his family, shunned from his family. So now not only was he dealing with people thinking he was cursed because of his inability to walk because of his illness, now people were saying, well, now you're lost because you've forsaken the Islamic faith and you've decided to follow this Jesus. But he had made friends with our friend, Jeff. And he said, oh, would you please bring your friends when they come to visit, would you please bring them to my house? I want to host them for a meal. You see, in the Islamic culture, hosting in a lot of countries, Hosting is very important. Hospitality is very important. To be able to have someone over for a meal is just a sign of respect, a sign of honor. I mean, it's something that everybody should do, you know? In fact, if, if we knew that, maybe we'd understand that people that are coming from different cultures and different countries, sometimes when they come to America, they think that we're so unfriendly because we don't invite them over for a meal. When it's simply as sharing a meal with someone, inviting someone to your house has such power. But I've already explained some of the limitations that he had in being able to do that. But when we were there, he said, oh, Jeff, would you please bring some of your friends over and let us share a meal together? So we did. And what John did was, because he couldn't cook himself, is he hired the lady across the street to cook for him. And so she cooked and prepared all the food. And we came over. It was Jeff. It was his dad. Um, they called his dad Papa Jeff because that's the way they, they do it in that country. And he was very honored. In fact, 
they, they, they found a chair out of nowhere. I'm not kidding. The one chair we had for the whole meal was for Papa Jeff because he was Jeff's dad and he was the king of the gathering right there. And, uh, and there was a, a cloth just laid out on the ground and the ground was lava rock because the whole island is a volcano. So the ground is covered with lava rock and a, and a cloth is laid out and the ladies bringing food over from across the dirt path where we were and, and uh, the sun is setting in this beautiful tropical paradise and, and the whole thing is just like nothing I've ever experienced before in my life. The whole setting, I just felt I was in another world. And as I looked up at the sky, I saw the bats. Oh yes, friends, there were bats. So let me tell you about these bats. They're the largest bats in the world. They're the Livingstone bats. Their wingspan can be up to five feet. And they're called flying foxes because they have the face of a fox. That's how big these bats are. I'm not lying to you. And when I'm sitting here looking at the palm trees and the setting sunrise, I look up and there's dozens of these bats just gliding over, you know, looking down. I'm like, oh boy, I hope those bats aren't hungry because I think they could pick up some of the smaller ones of us and carry us off. And I thought, what is, I'm sitting on lava rock. There's these huge bats flying over my head. I mean, we're, we're at this man's house, right? Where nobody's family won't come to his house. Nobody comes to his house, but he was honored by being able to host us and have a meal. And we sat on the ground, and oh, the food we ate, friends. Let me tell you, tuna fish caught fresh from the ocean and grilled to perfection. Cassava root, which if, I don't know if you've had it, it's kind of like a potato, a starch. We had jackfruit. We had rice. We had you eat with your hands, only the right hand in Islamic culture. And we just sat there, and it was such a beautiful, beautiful. And in the process of that meal, Jean sat there and he had this grin that was just from ear to ear that never left his face because of, of all the homes in the island, his humble home was the one that the visitors from America had come to visit and he had been able to host us. And, and, and you can see that it was giving honor, that it was elevating dignity. We were sharing delicious food together. We were sharing conversation together. And that story is one example of the power that sharing a meal together can have. Now in the passage that Pasholeen read for us so beautifully this morning, it talks about a meal that the Lord commanded his people, the Israelites, to have together. And it talks about some elements of that gathering together that were very powerful so that it's not just a meal. It's not, you guys know what I'm talking about. There's a difference between a meal where family and friends are gathered around and together eating and sharing together and those meals that we just do really quick, you know, because we're on the run and we have to do it. But this was for the people of God to come together and to share a meal together. And there's some powerful things I want to point out from this passage this morning. But before I do that, I want to talk about the setting of this particular meal, okay? This meal was, they said they were supposed to bring their tithes together of what they had, the land had produced for this meal together, okay? So I need to talk a little bit about tithing and what that meant to people in the Old Testament. But before that, I need to talk a little bit about sacrifice, the idea of bringing sacrifices into worship, because that's the setting that the tithes come out of, okay? So we've got the meal. We're going to leave the table set for just a minute, right? And we're going to take two steps back, and let me try to set up the background of, what the, of how this was written. If you think back to the earliest times of mankind, think in your mind about the earliest men and women that lived thousands maybe tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, who knows exactly how long ago, okay? And when those people first lived, you know, some people, they, they call them cave people, you know, cavemen, cave women, but, you know, there, there had to be 
there's not that many caves in the world, is there? I was thinking there had to be more people that just kind of, you know, made their own houses, lived out, you know, wherever. I mean, you know, I don't know. I've seen some caves, but there's not caves everywhere. Anyhow, think of first peoples, first nation peoples all over the world, right? And, and as they're trying to understand life way, way back in the day, right? And they understand that there's some basic necessities for life, right? And one of those necessities is food, right? If you don't eat, you're not going to live very long, amen? And so they need food. And so the food was dependent upon these plants that would grow in the ground, right? And, and, and these, if these plants grew, then they could be fed. And maybe the animals that they would also eat could be fed as well. Um, they could also go out hunting, right? And they could gain food that way. But these crops that grew in the ground were very important, almost elemental to their survival and their existence. And they would begin to understand very quickly as they watched the seasons change and the way things grow that they could plant right things that would grow they could take care of things that would grow but the way that they grew was completely dependent on things that were out of their control for instance the rain that fell from the sky they could not control the rain that fell from the sky if there was too much rain the plants wouldn't grow if there wasn't enough rain if there was a drought then the plants wouldn't grow and they were dependent upon the sun this bright light of the sky and they would realize that we are dependent for our very existence upon forces that exist beyond our control right and so what they did is they began to name these forces and, and, and call them gods, or they began to develop gods and goddesses that controlled these forces, right? Because if this is beyond our understanding and beyond our control, there must be beings somewhere, or these forces must be gods. So they had gods for everything, right? Cultures all over the world did this. They had goddesses and gods for the sun, for the rain, for the harvest, for the hunt, for being able to have children, for though, even though they know, you know, a man and a woman, it doesn't take long before they figure out how to make children, right, when they're together. But they also understood that sometimes those babies survived and sometimes they didn't. And so they would develop gods and goddesses that they would pray to, that they would bring sacrifices to. Because the important thing was if we're going to live, if the plants are going to grow, then we need the gods on our side. But here's the problem. The gods never spoke to them. The gods never spoke back to them because they weren't really gods. So they always lived with this deep anxiety that I believe is still in the human heart today of every single person. Is that I don't know where I stand with the gods. I don't know, or, or I live by fate, or I live by chance, and it's very anxious because you never know what's going to happen. And you can imagine some of these early people saying to themselves, well, if, if my crop's good, then the gods have blessed me, right? And, and, and so I bring a portion of my crop. I bring an animal from my herd to give thanks to the gods. So altars were developed in every culture, not just the culture of the Bible. In every culture, altars were developed, and sacrifices were brought, right? And we have, we have research that can show you all over the world, people would bring sacrifices to the gods because you wanted the gods to be pleased with you. So you brought a certain amount. But here's the problem. Here's the fundamental flaw in that whole system. Suppose your crops did really well, right? You had three, four times as many crops. Well, you couldn't bring the same amount, right? Because you wouldn't want the gods to think you're not grateful. Oh, I'd have four times more than the guys said I need to bring four times more offering, right? I need to bring more, right? But on the other side, if you had a drought, or the crops weren't doing well, what was your conclusion? Well, the gods must be angry with me, right? And if the gods are angry with me, then I need to make them happy, so I need to bring more. So whether you did well, <coughs> excuse me, or whether you did really bad, you always had to bring more. You always had to bring more, because you had to keep the gods happy. And say it went on for a long time, and there was no rain, and there was no rain, and there was no rain. 
and, and the crops or the animals were getting smaller and smaller. And he kept bringing more and more, but still there was no rain. Still there was no, no more animals being born, right? Maybe a disease that hit your flock and you bring more. And finally you get down to your last animal. And you're like, well, if I bring this animal, I got nothing more to bring. But if I bring this animal, we're going to die. But if I don't, the gods are so angry with me that I may die anyhow. Or the last bit of crops. We either eat this and live or we bring it to God. We just always have to bring more and, and more. Friends, that's the way, if I could just pause and say that idols still work today. Every false god will continue to demand more and more of you, and it's never, ever enough. So in some cultures, they would cut themselves. They would shed their own blood to try to appease the god because they had nothing else to give. And when the gods still weren't answering him, and that's why across many cultures in, in ancient times, you found the practice of child sacrifice. The only thing I have left to bring is my child. The firstborn. And it was not uncommon throughout the world at the time the Bible was written for people to be doing this. So what sounds strange to us, you have to understand, they understood this is just the way life is. All of the cultures around us are doing this because we always are worried that the gods are so angry for us that they're not for us, that they're against us. And into that steps something new. Into that is spoken a word that is so radical, so progressive, and we're still wrestling with it thousands and thousands and millions of years later. And that is that God came into the world and he said to Abraham, Abraham, I choose you. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. This was a God that talked back. This was a God that revealed himself, that revealed his word. And he said, listen, Abraham, I'm going to take you and I'm going to bless you. Not because of anything you've done, but because I choose you. You see, the whole thing is not, you don't have to worry about whether I, I love you or not. I love you, first of all, before you do anything, before you bring me anything, before you bring any sacrifice, I choose you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to others. And the only thing Abraham had to do was believe it, for the Bible says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. What a radical thing this God did. What a radical thing this God came and said, listen, I'm going, to t I'm going to be for you, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you instructions on exactly what you need to do. So this God then appeared to Moses many years later, and Moses had led the Israelites, the people of God, the Jewish people, out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the wilderness, and then eventually into the promised land. And God appeared to Moses and spoke to him. Moses didn't have to try to guess. Moses didn't have to try to know. God would say, I'm pleased with you. I'm angry with you. God would let him know exactly where he was at because this God was a straight-up God. And he said, listen, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. You don't need to worry about how much you need to bring. I'm going to set up sacrifices and offerings that you can bring as a way to show your honor and your respect for me. He said, listen, if I've blessed you, then yes, you need to come and you need to bring part of that blessing back as a way to honor God, but also to trust in me. And then also, as we see, even from what was read, in an atmosphere of joy and celebration instead of one of fear and doubt. And remember, I said in, in a lot of cultures, you had to keep bringing more and more and more. Well, God begins right in Leviticus chapter one with the burnt offering. And he says, listen, here's what you need to do. Bring me one bull. That's it. All you need to do is bring one. Just bring one and sacrifice it in this way. And he gives the instructions and it will be a fragrant offering to me and it will be acceptable to me and it will be a meal that I accept as worship to me. That's all you have to do. 
And then even in the very beginning, a subtle thread, which sometimes we miss, is that God was providing a way for everyone to worship God. So it wasn't a matter of, well, God blessed me because I'm richer, or God you know, didn't bless me because I don't have enough money. God made a way for people of every economic level to come and worship because he said, if you have a bull, bring a bull. If you have a sheep or a goat, bring a sheep or a goat. If you have a bird, then just bring a bird. And what that represents, friends, is three levels of economic in that society. That if you were rich, you had to, you were a rancher, right? You had cattle, you had livestock, you could bring a bull. If you were middle class, if you didn't have as much money, maybe you had a few sheep or a few goats that were tending. Well, you could bring that if you're middle class. If you were so poor that you just had to work for other people and you couldn't even have your own animals, God said, it's all right for you to bring a bird. Just bring a dove or a pigeon. In other words, God said, I'm a God where everybody has access. There is a seat at my table for everyone. It's not about whether you're rich or poor or in between. It's about knowing that I've chosen you, I love you, and follow my instructions for life. If you follow my instructions, you will live. And if you don't follow my instructions, you will slowly die. And this God said, and if you don't follow my instructions and you sin and you do things that are wrong, here's how you come back. Very simple. Bring the sacrifice, pray, come back, and you will be restored. I am for you, and I'm not against you. And when you feel like I'm against you, and when you look and you say, God, I've made mistakes, I've messed up, God says, I want you to know that there's always a way back to me. Just follow, order your life, order your steps, order your life according to what I'm telling you, and it will go well with you. And that's the background of, of the sacrifices of the Israelites and the Jewish people, the people of God. So God gave them something they could engage in that they would understand that everybody else was doing, but you see, he did it in a new and revolutionary way so that they would understand, listen to this, that they could express to God that they trusted God, that they gave thanksgiving to God, and so that there could be joy together as the people. Because some of those offerings they brought together were a meal. Some of those offerings were to be shared together as a meal. So it's kind of like, you know, you're coming together, you're bringing some of the offerings, but you're having a barbecue as well, you know, and you're cooking it up and you're sharing it with people, right? And so then what happens, the next thing is the tie. So then people would bring money they would bring tithes so they would bring part of uh, a tenth a tithe means a tenth of the of the crops they had they'd bring a tenth of everything together for this meal right that pastor Lee was talking about but this was actually the second tithe the first tithe was just the money they would bring or the offerings they would bring the food to support the levites now let me say a word about the levites before we get to this one the levites were the priests they were the pastors of of, of the people of god of the israelites of the jewish people and when they went into the promised land, when they first got to the promised land, when they came out of Egypt, they went through the wilderness, they crossed the river Jordan, uh, the Israelites were divided by 12 families. They were the 12 sons of Jacob. And one of Jacob's sons, Levi, you know, his tribe were set apart to be the priests and pastors for God. So when they got to the land, they divided up the land. They said every tribe gets this area of land that they can live in. You can build, you can raise your animals, you can raise your crops, except for the Levites. That's why you heard Pastor Lee read, the Levites had no allotment, no inheritance. That's where that comes from. So because they were to dedicate themselves to the temple and to the work of God. So therefore, all the other 11 tribes were to bring a tenth of all that they created, whether it was produce or animals or money, and they were to bring it to the temple so that it could provide for the priests and for their families, right? And so it could provide for the house of God. Now, the reason that it was 10% is because back then it was a little different than today. When you, when you think of Israel, right, you think of a nation, right? When you think of Jewish people, it's both an ethnicity and a nationality. So what happens in the Old Testament is that it was a political nation 
as well as a spiritual community, right? And, and we don't have that the same way today. We don't, you know, we, we, we're not a political, the, the church of Jesus Christ is not a, a political entity in the world, right? Um, well, I suppose Vatican City is its own country, but I won't get into that. I don't have time to get into that today. We'll just talk about how it was different. So uh, a strict 10% was needed because it was part of their economy. It was part of, a part of the way that their country worked. And that was for that time. And that's why I don't, I don't preach a literal or strict 10%. So when we use the word tithes and offerings today, we use it more generally. We've kind of changed the term to mean what we bring to God out of what he's given to us to support. But we follow the same principles, right? So the money that you bring to church, it supports the Levite, the priest, which happens to be me. I'm the pastor. So it supports the pastor. It supports the priest um, you know, to give a salary, to provide for their family. Um, we know we have to rent this place. We buy equipment, right? There's lots of things for the man of God and the house of God that people bring in. And so we follow that principle. Now, people do it all different ways today. You'll find all different kinds of ways that people are doing that because we live in a, in a much bigger and much more diverse world. Um, but that's the way we've chosen to do it here. So I feel called by God, like the Levites and the priests, so that instead of working a job outside, my job is to care for the house and the people of God, right? And when you guys give your first tithe, then, then that's God confirming that, right? I mean, if I wasn't able to do that, then we would, you know, we would have other ways to do that. That's why some pastors will work another job and work at a church. You know, there's different ways that that works out based on the generosity or the ability of people in that particular congregation to give. But we follow that same principle today. And that's the money that we bring, that we give, that we donate online. Um, it pays for everything that's going on. In fact, you know, to administrate and keep track of everything, you know, with our communication and also keep track of the money organize things is a very big job so we also pay pastor rosalie uh, we hire her for hours some hours each week to do that for us because that's such an important job so i just want to give props and honor to pastor rosalie and give it up for her for everything that she does i really appreciate that and then you know we have the ministry to youth and 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 connecting to the community so the other things that pastors do today that you know that the people's ties allows them to do is that i can go out during the day during the work day and i can make connections make connections with other churches, with the school, with community organizations. We have connections in Mexico. We have connections in Honduras. You know, I'm working at making those kingdom connections so that we as a people are connected to the work that God is doing in the world. But here's the most basic definition of what a priest does, of what a pastor does, that if you want to just distill it all together, and I, and I think this is beautiful the way it's said, a priest or a pastor is someone who speaks to the people for God. Speaks to God and people. My prayer, my intercession is the number one thing that I do. And I pray every Sunday, God, what do you want me to share? What do you want me to teach? What do you want me to share with your people? And then I take all of your hearts and your burdens and what you're going through, and I lay that before the Lord in his system. You know, and by the grace of God, by the grace of a system like this or some form of this, it allows women and men of God to dedicate themselves to the work of the Lord in the world. It's a special and unique calling. Well, that's where the tithe comes from, right? Well, that was the first tithe. What we read about this morning is the, actually the second tithe. And the second tithe is kind of exciting, to be honest with you. It truly was a party. Did you catch that? It was about bringing your food together, bringing your drink together, everybody getting together and having a party, like a full-on party. And in fact, it even says in there that you're going to gather together, and, and, and it may be in one place here, later on it may be in another place, 
But wherever I choose to place my name, I want all my peoples to get together. And I want you to bring everything together. And I want you to have a party. Oh, do you, can you feel the atmosphere of joy that's in it? And it said, check this out. If it's too far for you to get to, or God's blessed you with so much that you can't carry all of the crops that, that you're bringing. You can't even bring all of the steaks and all of the food that you're bringing. Although, here's what I want you to do. Turn it into money. You know, sell everything. Turn it into some coin. And then when you get to the place, buy whatever you want. Oh, friends, do you see the freedom? Somebody's lied to you and told you that religion is all about being dull and dry and restrictive. But you read it from the word of God. Does it not say buy whatever you want? Pastor, didn't it say that? Buy whatever you want. Whatever meat you want, buy it. It's good. Let's eat it. Buy the meat. Whatever drink you want, whatever wine you want, whatever wine. And it even said, how did you read it? The strong drink. It said, if you want to buy the strong drink, can I get an amen on that? I mean, the word of God says, if you want to buy some whiskey, buy some whiskey, okay? Because we're having a party with the people of God right here. And that's what the tithe was for, right? How many of you ever grown up in your life and the tithe is such this overwhelming, oppressive thing? And you're like, oh, they're always talking about money and how I have to give money. No, 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 no. The Bible is very, very clear in the New Testament. It says, listen, everyone should give as they have decided in their hearts to not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful people. They would gather and they'd bring the, so really, if you wanted to be literal, the Old Testament, they really gave 20%. It was really more than, there was two tithes that they were required to bring. And notice that they were also supposed to take care of those who needed to be taken care of. They said you have Levites in every town. Some towns are smaller, some towns are bigger, right? Some churches are smaller, some churches are bigger. Make sure they're all taken care of. Make sure they have a part in this too. Make sure the fatherless, the orphans, because they're vulnerable, make sure they're included too. The widows, those who've lost their husbands, those who can't work anymore on their own, make sure they get included too. So what you have is a great festive meal that was one in the presence of the Lord. It was marked by joy, and it was a place where everyone was included. And friends, those are my simple three points for the message this morning. But I want to challenge us and encourage us to get together as the people of God to see how sharing a meal together can be an act of worship in the presence of the Lord, to re realize that there's a time for celebration and joy. There's a time to be sad. And some meals are shared in sadness, and there's a time for that. There's a time for weeping. There's also a time for dancing and for singing and for having joy. And then finally, that we make sure everyone is included. We had an example of this last week. Claire, you can go to the pictures. Last week, if you weren't here, we had a chili fest after church. We basically lived out this verse, right? We brought things together. Everyone had a meal together. Everyone shared, right? And, and there was laughter. There was conversation. It was like a family meal together. And, and so we had an example of that. And so at the end of this month, the last Sunday in November, we're going to do a family meal again, okay? So just to give you a little preview, we're going to invite everyone that comes that Sunday to stay after church. We're going to invite everybody to bring something. We're going to live out what this verse is saying. Because notice that it says in the presence of the Lord. What the meal becomes is an act of worship because it's done in the presence of the Lord. And it actually honors God when we come together and eat together. Can I get one amen? Anybody out there like me like to eat? Hallelujah. <laughs> it actually honors God when we come together and when we eat together, when we share meals together because there's a powerful connection. There's a powerful thing that happens. So how can we honor God's presence? How can we be in God's presence when we're sharing meals with each other? Well, the first thing that came to my mind is what so many of us grew up doing is, is saying a prayer, saying grace before meals, right? How many people grew up in a home where the grace was said before meals, right? 
when somebody would stop and say, hey, I want to give a prayer for the meal. That was a simple way of acknowledging the presence of God in your midst. There's lots of ways you could do it. You could set up an empty chair at your table and just say, hey, that chair is a reminder that God is a guest here this evening, you know, right? That God is there. Um, some people, you know, light a candle, and that symbolizes the presence of God. But the point is, what I'm asking you to do is that during, especially this month, be conscious when you're sharing meals with other people, right? Be conscious of the presence of God with you. And you don't have to do it out loud because sometimes it gets really kind of weird, you know, when, when someone prays out loud for a long time and it sounds more like they're preaching than they're praying. You know what I'm talking about, right? You get some of those prayers that are just really about that person, you know? So you don't have to do it out loud, but even if you're sharing a meal in your heart, in your heart, and maybe out loud, recognize the presence of the Lord. Recognize that you are in the presence of the Lord. Be thankful to God. Because that food, in some way, going back to the earliest days, we didn't control how that food got to our table. God was involved, along with human work, in the process of bringing that food to our table. Give thanks to God. Trust God. Trust that as God is providing for everyone around your table, that God has said, I will always provide for you. And then the second thing is to do it in an atmosphere of joy. Remember I said there's a time and season for everything. And I'm not saying to put on a happy face when things aren't going well. No, there are some meals that you need to sit in where there's sadness. There's some meals that need to be shared in, in, in quietness. But there are some meals where we need to realize that God has created this world for us to enjoy. And Satan is the one working against it so that we don't enjoy this world, right? Satan is the one corrupting everything good that God has made. Friends, think about it. How many different ways do food taste? Does all food taste the same? No. Why are there hundreds and thousands of different tastes of food? Is everything the same color in this world? Why? I mean, we don't need color, do we? We don't need taste. I could get all the nutrients, all the nutrients I wanted if everything tasted like macaroni and cheese, you know, whatever I ate. My cereal tasted like mac and cheese, my steak tasted, everything could taste the same and I would be fine. Everything could look the same, there could be no colors and I would be fine. But the very fact that God created things with diversity and with many flavors, with many colors, is a signal that he wants us to enjoy this world that he's created. God has given us gifts. And he wants us, friends, to enjoy them, right? Can you imagine? Let me just do a parable here for a minute, all right? Can you just imagine that Pastor Angel, lovely Pastor Angel, handsome as he is, like he likes to remind us all the time, right? And his handsome son, Noah, right? He gives Noah a bike, right? Say he goes, Noah, Noah, here's a brand new bike, right? And you can imagine Noah's face, if Noah wants a bike, I don't know, but it's a story. Go with it. And Noah's like, oh, Bobby, look at this bike. It's beautiful. It's like amazing. Look at the tires. Oh, it's beautiful. Thank you so much, Bobby. Thank you. You are a great father. I love you. I know that you worked hard to provide this bike for me, and I thank you. First of all, every parent's going, Lord Jesus, let my child talk like that. <laughs> let them be thankful, right? But, right? but he's doing the right thing. It's important. It's important to be thankful. It's important to be grateful. It's important to recognize where it came from, right? But then Noah takes the bike, and he puts it in the garage, and he leaves it there. And then when his friends come over, he's like, oh, oh, friends, come and look. Friends, he takes them outside, and he shows them the bike. He's like, look at this bike. Look how beautiful it is. They're like, oh, ah. He's like, my dad gave me that bike. My dad gave me this bike. Isn't it beautiful? And the bike's just sitting there in the garage. Now, Angel's going to be happy, right? He's going to feel a little bit of pride that his son is so proud, right? My son's really proud of this bike. He loves it. He shows it off to everyone that comes. But what's the problem with this story? He never rides the bike. He's grateful for where it came from, 
He acknowledges and gives respect to the father that provided for him. He's even proud of it. And it brings him some sense of joy that the bike is sitting there in the garage. But Angel's got to be inside going, boy, I did not buy you that bike to sit in the garage. Because as much joy as Angel would get from that, he would get a whole lot more if he saw Noah on that bike with the wind flying through his hair and a huge smile on his face, enjoying the gift as it was intended for him enjoy friends God has given us the food of this earth and the drink of this earth for us to enjoy he's given us family and friends for us to enjoy and he wants our gatherings around the meal to enjoy the meal that was given that's why in the passage he said buy whatever you want buy whatever you want because I want you to enjoy this I want you you like a certain kind of drink buy it you like Sprite, you get the Sprite, okay? You like Pepsi, you get the Pepsi, all right? You know, I want you to enjoy this together, right? And so this meal, gathering together, can be worship to God. It is worship to God. It honors God. And it especially honors Him when we enjoy it. And then the last thing I'll say today before I close is this. That it was so careful to make sure that everyone was included. Make sure the Levites are taken care of. Make sure that the pastors that are in the small towns, the out-of-way towns, make sure they're taken care of. Make sure the stranger, the foreigner, the alien, yet another example where the word of God says to his people back then, treat the foreigner as if they were a native born. Treat him exactly like you would those who are like you. Oh, friends, we need that word today, do we not? Treat those who have a different skin color exactly like you would treat your own, right? Treat them the same. Treat them the same. Whether they're crippled or, or well, whether they're from this religion or that religion, whether they're rich or whether they're poor, make sure everyone has a seat at this table, right? And the orphans and the widows, they're talked about a lot in the Bible because, again, way back in the day, they were so vulnerable. And in many ways, they're still vulnerable today, right? They don't have all of the things that, that, that a full family has with all of these people, right? You know that sometimes if you lose your parents at a young age, it creates a vulnerability in your life. If you end up older and you're on your own, it creates a vulnerability. We need to take care of each other. We need to welcome each other. We need to make sure that, that everyone has a seat at the table. So friends, I told you, at the end of this month, when I'm done preaching about the importance of meals, we're going to gather together here. We're going to have a meal. And I want you all to come. And I want you to bring people with you, all right? And I got a few more weeks to prep you on that. But at the beginning of this month, here's what I want to do. Here's where I want to release you. Amen. And Molly, I don't know if you're around, but you can come up and hit the keys right now because we're going to go into prayer. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take every time you gather together this month, I want you to think about getting together with other people, getting together for a meal, having people over to your house or going to their house, going out to eat, even if all, and again, whatever you can do, maybe it's just a donut. Just go have a donut with somebody. Just go have a cup of coffee with somebody, right? Just go share some food or some drink with somebody and do it intentionally. Today, I want you to make a decision. God, who are you calling me to get together with? Because when I get together with them, we're going to be in the presence of God together. And we're going to share whatever joy we have. And we're going to make sure that everyone is included. Can I release you guys with that second tithe? That second tithe, you don't have to bring into here. But I want you to take a portion of what God's blessed you with. And I want you to go out and eat with people this month. All right, amen. I want you to have people over to your house. All right, amen. I want, us, I want our second tithe to explode 
all over this city, all over this region, right? So that everyone here is like, man, I'm going to be a second tither this month. Nobody will know what you're talking about. That's okay. You're like, I'm just going to take what God has given me, and I'm going to get together with people, and, I'm, and we're going to eat a meal and share life in the presence of God and experience joy together. Would you pray with me in this moment? Would you pray with me? Amen. Because I believe that God wants to guide you specifically in this right now. I believe that God wants to call you to get together with someone and to share a cup of coffee or to share a meal or whatever. So if you'd close your eyes, I just want you in your mind to picture yourself sitting at a table right now, okay? Just picture yourself sitting at a table, any kind of table, any size. And I want you to picture that there's an empty seat right across from you. So in your mind, just picture that you're sitting at this table, there's an empty seat across from you. Now ask the Lord, who do you want me to invite to fill that seat? Right now, whoever God brings to your mind, don't, don't, don't worry about it. Just what name comes to your mind? What person's face comes to your mind? Pray for that person right now. 